Welcome to another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. I think this is our second one in two weeks. Is it, Aaron? It is. Two that, weeks in a row. That mellifluous voice is none other than Aaron Porter, uh, my co-conspirator, joining hold, us. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Pause. What's I'm, it? I'm Googling mellifluous. <laughs> joining us from the other side of the continent. I'm uh, down here, uh, not at the tip of Florida, more toward the scrotum of Florida. In uh... <laughs> <laughs> are, are you allowed to say, this is a Christian podcast, there are no tips or scrotums. Okay, yes. Uh, uh, so what are you, what are you doing? Uh, oh man, I just filtered three things. What are you doing there? Uh <laughs> Uh, this is vacation, and uh, we're having this conversation on Valentine's Day. Oh, yeah, I forgot it was Valentine's Day. Oh, that's not a good thing for a married man to say. Oh, come on. My wife's birthday is two days before Valentine's Day, so she she kind of has to pick one or the other depending on how much money, or she can, yeah. So we, we have kind of an arrangement. Valentine's Day oh, you, is you never- You have an arrangement. What What was that? I see say you have again. an arrangement. You have an arrangement. I dare say that it's probably a different calculation in her head than in yours. No, I, here, here's my defense is that birthdays are huge to her. Yeah. So much so that it far eclipses Valentine's Day, which uh, since since high school, you know, it's little little gestures are appreciated. But because we do such a big thing two days before... Uh, yeah, I don't know. You can call her later. You can I don't ask know. Her. I do have to ask her about this because <laughs> it's my understanding that Valentine's Day is the high holy day for all women. Uh, <laughs> and so anyway, so we are here. We're in Amelia Island, Florida. We have two grandchildren who live here, our youngest two. And I will be babysitting them tonight so that their parents can go out on a Valentine's Day date uh, I did Valentine's Day early last night for Allie. I actually cooked lobster tails here in the uh, condo. Quite proud wow. of myself for that. But yeah, really. Wow. And uh, and she's having chocolate cake for breakfast here on Valentine's Day. That's kind of the treat. That wow, you are you are doing Valentine. Chocolate starts early on Valentine's Day for you guys. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So so this island. You're mm -hmm. on. It's it's an actual little island, I assume, because that would it be, is. It is. It's okay. actually it's the north part of, of uh, Florida. Actually, you you can spit to Georgia from here. Yeah, oh. uh, uh, and it's a it's a historic place. Uh, in that way, it's a lot like Franklin, our hometown. Uh, this place was actually invaded by the British during the Revolutionary War. So, and it's got a, a, a long Indian history before that. So, uh, you know, the oldest saloon in Florida is here. It managed to stay open during Prohibition. It's just a freaking fantastic place designed wow. by uh, Adolphus Bush. And uh, let me see. For That's those, the highlights, those, really. For the seashells and that, a great pub. What? For those listeners that don't know, Nate loves the little historical facts and is the best tour guide at places, well, pretty, pretty much anywhere. So that would be a fun place to be with you. In yeah. historic pubs and uh, 
British enclaves during the Revolutionary War. Sure, That's sure. And, a, and about an hour south of here is St. Augustine, the oldest uh, European settlement in uh, North America. The Spanish fort and the, the narrow streets in the little town. It's really, it's a, it's a fantastic place to be. So we're here and it's, uh, I've got a grandson who had a birthday a couple days ago. So we made it here for the birthday party at his preschool. That's what we're doing. And on the way down, we stopped in uh, Montgomery, Alabama, capital of the great state of Alabama, where I had the privilege to speak, uh, deliver a keynote at a human trafficking summit, uh, where I was once again reacquainted with the, the truth, the seamy side of the sex business, the part that is so artfully hidden by those people who profit from it. And it's amazing uh, how easy it is for those illusions to begin to reassert themselves when we, uh, when we fail to stay in conversation with the victims of human trafficking. Yeah, that's, that's so, it's so huge right now that, that people understand what's happening just beneath the surface in the very towns they live in. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is this is not a big city problem. We've talked about it on the show before. It's yeah, be, because yeah. of the the connectivity of technology with with the internet and things like Snapchat and all of that. Uh, man, it reaches everywhere. Yes, absolutely. So recruitment has gone uh, to the internet. You know, the the grooming and cultivation of the victims of human trafficking, and then the selling of them. You know, one of the reasons why we see fewer street hookers today is that uh, the, um, you know, the pimps, the sellers have found more efficient ways to advertise their product. And uh, human trafficking now is m- the second most lucrative, uh, you know, criminal enterprise in the world behind drugs and not very far behind drugs. The traffickers have discovered that they can make a lot more money selling uh, women and boys and girls than they can selling drugs with less risk. And the big upside for them is you can sell a person over and over and over and over and over again where you can sell that that dose of a drug just once. Uh, and if you can create dependency, uh, if you can, uh, you know, capitalize on that appetite for connection, convince people that it's possible to buy what can only be given, right? Uh, There's a lot of money to be made, and there are some very wicked people involved. And, um, you know, my, my message really at the summit, not one that was necessarily very popular, although I did get a hearing. It's very, very easy uh, for those who are defending and rescuing the, the the victims of human trafficking, to demonize everybody involved, both the seller and the buyer. Uh, I was there to humanize the buyer and to make the case that for many of us, uh, this is something that we are, you know, dying not to do. We wake up every day saying, I'm not going to do it. And then... Uh, mm-hmm. Because we have been ensnared, uh, we're back at it. So, anyway, uh, you know that uh, Jenny and I used to talk about this. Uh, 
I remember when Datelines to Catch a Predator first came out. Yeah. And what, I mean, that was a long time ago, right? It's got to be at least 15 to mm-hmm. close to 20 years ago. And I remember us watching a couple episodes of it because it was just kind of fascinating to us. Sure. And you're watching guys who have put themselves in, in a chat room, like they made the choice to go there, they're getting in a conversation, and then when they showed up to the house, so many of them, you just saw how they would fall apart when they were caught. Like mm-hmm. some of them happy they were caught, some of them, but what was never shown on the show that seems so obvious in so many of the personalities was how they were just in a fog. Like yes. there was just so much complexity to what was going on on the guy's part. Um, and, and I won't say that they're, they weren't being predators, but to just categorize all these guys as predators was to ignore the stuff that needs to be dealt with to to stop that behavior. If we think that behavior is bad, we need to deal with mm-hmm. that side of the issue. Right, right. So yeah. there you go. I can I can be not popular too now. <laughs> <laughs> and I also wanted uh, I also took some liberties in in trying in the limited time I had there to communicate that pornography is creating victims, both uh, buyers and, uh, you know, consumers. Yeah. Yeah. Consumers and those, and those being sold, you know, um, you know, at a rapid pace and we've got to do something to protect our children uh, so that we don't line them up for this travesty. Well, boy, that got dark and deep. Tell me, uh, uh, speaking of dark and deep, I see you in the shadowed recesses of the shed there. Tell me, <laughs> yeah, tell me about your studio and how, uh, how is life outside the studio there in San Luis for you? Uh, I, I don't go outside of the studio slash shed anymore. <laughs> I, <laughs> I get here daily before the sun rises and go back in about the time it's going down. Uh, yeah, just been been busy. Uh, lots. It, isn't it weird? And I'm gonna ask God about this someday because there must be some cosmic mechanism in place. But bad stuff is never a one-off. Like wow. this week has just been. First, there were three, and I went, "Oh, good, groups of three. That's what they say." But then it got up to five as of oh, yesterday. But it had been like kind of relatively, you know, as far as just our our community uh at at church pretty uneventful not mm-hmm. no new deaths or divorces or sicknesses and in a few months so what i mean has that happened for you too that they come in clumps oh yeah absolutely yeah so why what is that <laughs> <laughs> i i don't know i it, it, probably something in the cosmic algorithm that we will someday understand <laughs> So we'll find out, like, if it didn't come in clumps, then the tides wouldn't operate properly and there would be tsunamis and, and we'll go, oh, OK, well, I yeah. guess it had to be then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. If, if I that... don't know. I answered that like a good Calvinist. And I'm not necessarily a, a very good Calvinist, but. Yeah, there's, <laughs> I, I would say there's no news to report other than uh, birthday celebrations for brides and me being convinced that it's more important than Valentine's Day. 
I was going to try to get her on the phone, by the way, just to justify myself publicly. But then I realized she couldn't hear your questions unless I changed all of the wires around. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'll just assume I'm right. Oh, but here's yes. what I think we should do is take a quick break and come back because I know we have a letter in the mail bag that we want to get to. So that is more important than shed talk. So let's get out of here and we'll be right back on the Pirate Monk podcast. Excellent. All right. I'll bring us back in. and Okay. Then... We'll do this quickly. He doesn't really have a question so much, but okay, good. Ready? Okay. Yep. All right. We are back on the Pirate Monk podcast. The, the mail sack is open from the tip of Florida and... <laughs> I'm I'm not even going to keep going, but there were so many more. We could do more. Yes, we could. Absolutely. Long. Yes, we could. <laughs> well, hey, uh, let's just pull a letter out of the mailbag here. Here's one that arrived just in the last week since we uploaded the last uh, episode. This one comes from Darian. He says, hey, Nate and Aaron. He is, now, this is Darian, our friend from Colorado. He was at... Now, if... if you know, if there was a different Darian, uh, I am sorry, but I'm going with this. I think this is from our friend from the uh, Recharge Weekend. So I'm excited. Okay. All right. Okay. Thanks for the discussion in the Needy Men podcast. I've read plenty of material and gone through Prodigal's International's homecoming version of the 12 Steps. I've been listening for a long time to the podcast and enjoyed the Colorado retreat with you both. What you guys talked about today was awesome, and I'm surprised at how much of Nate's story I identified with. My parents' role and upbringing in my addiction has always been a struggle for me to accept. They weren't perfect. In fact, they actually sucked at being parents. I always thought they did the best they could, but have come to realize that I got the legal necessities, food, clothing, shelter, etc., but not a lot else. I've come to forgive them through the 12 steps and I'm working on restoring a relationship with them, starting with my father. What hit home for me was the needy men part and just how little I ask my wife for anything. I've long since abandoned the shining white knight on a stallion mentality that can take care of everything and rescue the day and traded it for an old worn out soldier in rusty armor riding a donkey through a minefield as a humbler way to live. My wife has consistently asked if there's anything she can do to help. And I've almost never said anything other than, nope, I got this. I'm determined to do everything I can to take care of the house and her, etc., without realizing how much I've likely been telling her that she's not worth much to me. It's only in the last few months that I've started asking for the odd thing, and it's still really hard. Thanks so much for sharing your journey through that, as well as the intensive material. The four S's was great information and made me wonder more about some of my childhood experiences. It reminded me of the good night hug in my house. It was always the kids who had to go hug the parents good night. I can't recall ever being tucked in and them hugging me. I wonder whose need was being met in all those hugs. Thanks for the podcast. Keep them coming. Wow, that is great. Ex yeah. Awesome, awesome, and a courageous step. Go be needy, Darian. Go be needy. 
Uh, listening to that made me think when when he was saying, my wife comes to me, asks for things, and I almost always say, no, I've got it. I think when I do that, I I almost, I don't know why it made me think, my list of things I've been most bitter about are often the things I've specifically said, no, don't, I have not given you the information, but I'm going to keep a list of all the things I did that you didn't do. It's, that's a, such a strange cycle to be in. Yeah, isn't that amazing? Yeah, we can be very inventive in building that resentment list, and we can wall people out uh, with our attempts at self-sufficiency in ways we don't even recognize. Well, hey, we have got some great guests. Uh, I can't wait for our listeners to meet Ben and Ann Wilson, and we're going to bring them in in just a moment when we return on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Know why I've waited, know why I've been blue. Prayed each night for someone exactly like you. Why should we spend money on a show or two? No one does those love scenes exactly like you. You make me feel so grand. I want to give the world. And we are back on the Pirate Monk Podcast with special guests today, uh, Ben and Ann Wilson uh, from Longmont, Colorado. I met Ben just a couple of weeks ago when we uh, staffed together at Michael Cusick's Restoring the Soul Intensive. And Ben, I think you had the uh, you had the record there for consecutive uh, stints at the Intensive, didn't you? Yeah, I've been to everyone so far. It's just always a fantastic experience and hanging out and listening to Michael's teaching. I always enjoy that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I sure had a great time meeting you, Ben, and then was quite fascinated to learn that you and your wife have a story and you have a book and you have a ministry and God has used your brokenness now um, in his ongoing healing work. So uh, I... I've uh, got a copy of the book. Actually, you sent me one, and I'm so grateful for that. Thank you. Betrayed and Betrayer. What a fantastic book. A 90-day survival guide. So uh, let's start this way. Uh, ben and Ann, I'm sure you can work out who's going to talk and who's going to talk first. Tell us, <laughs> tell us your story. Okay. Well, it all started uh, back in uh, like near around New Year's Day of 1981. And Ben leans out the window of, of a car that he's pulled up to this little uh, convenience store in my hometown and says, hey, girl. So he had that hey, girl thing down before mm-hmm. Ryan Gosling was even born. Yeah. Um, but he, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so he's like, hey, girl, do you know where Thad Wilson lives? And I was like, yeah. And this was one of somebody who lived in my hometown that was on the golf team with Ben. And so I told him where he lived and, and that was kind of, I thought the end of it, but apparently he was looking in the yearbook to figure out who I was. And she was really pretty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. He remembered years later what I wore that night. Um, yeah. Oh, that's cool. Wow. I know, right? <laughs> and um, so then we ended up at the same college. He was going to school at Mizzou, and I ended up going to college there that next fall. And we started dating the day I got to school. He left a note on my dorm door before I even got there. And wow, I know, I know. And we, so we started dating that day as a couple of really messed up teenagers. Ben likes and, to say. And it, it didn't even cross your mind that this is stalkerish, that he knows the day I show up and which <laughs> one my dorm door is. That's fantastic. You are yeah, a yeah. custom person. Should have been a big red flag, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it, it was it was that fabulous hair and the deep dark tan and that red t-shirt. I just couldn't resist it, you know. <laughs> so, um, yeah. And so Ben likes to say now that uh, he knew I was messed up as a teenager because I was dating him. Because looking back, he realizes how messed up he was as a teenager. So mm -hmm. we were two pretty messed up kids just trying to, not even really trying to figure out how to do relationship. We were just doing dating you know and and we became sexual very quickly in our relationship that's a big part of my story and a big theme in my life growing up is is sexuality and and so i ended up getting pregnant a few years into our relationship and we ended up getting married and uh, starting family and we had another son a couple of another child two years later and i just became busy 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 taking care of the kids and working full-time and taking care of the house and i had um grown up not really knowing how to emote how how to identify my emotions so i was pretty emotionally unavailable as as a as a young woman so i it took me a long time to learn how to how to identify those emotions and, and express them can, can i ask because i i think i know what a man might mean if he says that what do you mean by emotionally unavailable i was very distant i would not share with ben any of the feelings that i had because i couldn't really even identify the feelings that i had i was pretty much happy all the time or either happy or i was closed off if if i wasn't happy then I would just shut down. If I was upset with Ben, I would give him the silent treatment, essentially, mm -hmm. or I would go slam cabinets first and then give him the silent treatment. Um, so I, I did three dishes, but it's a good thing we only had Tupperware back then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've, I've graduated to real real China now. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, like she said, I played golf in high school and college, and that was my currency really in life and if I played great I thought I was a good guy and if I played bad I thought I was a jerk and uh, so there were up and downs with that and that was my identity and eventually when I couldn't make it as a professional golfer we were married have a couple kids and I was really struggling in life and didn't know what to do with life I hadn't grown in other areas and really became suicidal at that point was drinking a lot drinking was a big thing in my family growing up and and uh, I latched on to that and Eventually, one day in my living room, just was, uh, didn't want to live, but didn't want to die, and went over to this big window and called out and looked up to the sky and said, God, this can't be what you intended for my life. Either take me back or show me the way. And I screamed that out in a fit of passion and, you know, and just went on with my day after that. But that was the moment where my life really began to change. And, and at that time, our relationship was really empty. We were just 
coexisting in an apartment with in a condo with two little kids. Uh, but we began to change at that point, and I began to step up some. As a man, I was pretty passive all the way through this, and uh, but started to make some decisions and joined the Army Reserves and went away, and then we moved down to a new town in Springfield, Missouri, and started working in new lo locations and meeting new people, and that's when I met a woman at work that uh, I became enamored with, and looking back, I could call that an emotional affair that started going out to lunch with her and started giving my heart her and really left and just lonely and wanting in her new job and her new place with her new people yeah and so that's when so me feeling lonely and vulnerable and all of that that's what kind of uh, allowed me or um, opened me up to being vulnerable to becoming involved in a physical affair I just I was Ben, you know, I would come home and Ben and I couldn't connect and this guy came into my workplace, a salesperson with his sparkly personality and he just kind of whisked me off my feet and was very attentive to me and so I became uh, physically involved with him. And so, but at the same time, I thought, I knew, I felt like something was missing and I wanted to get my kids in church. I'm like, my kids should really grow up in church. And so I thought, I know what I'll do because I felt this, this affair was brewing. It hadn't happened yet. And I thought, I will go to church and then that will rescue me from getting involved in this affair. Well, that didn't happen uh, because I was going to church for that reason rather than for looking for a relationship with God. Mm -hmm. And so... I did become involved in the affair and it was off and on for about three years. And then Ben eventually found out about it. And that was, I guess you could say a pivotal day in our lives. Yeah, that's a little understatement for sure. <laughs> but yeah, we had moved. <laughs> I wanted, I was started seminary and I knew all that summer, I thought it was going to be a great summer, but she had, I hadn't heard this guy's name for a while. And then she picked up traveling with him at this new job. And, it just felt wrong, but there's something in me that didn't want to believe she was actually an affair. Something intuitively knows how much pain that's going to bring. But eventually, I figured out how to get into her voicemail, and uh, don't advocate that all the time. But in this situation, I'm okay. It just felt like something was going on, and eventually heard a message that confirmed what I was thinking and confronted her, and and that's when she confessed the affair, and and all hell broke loose, and all heaven broke loose at the same day. It was just the best moment of my life and the worst moment of my life all wrapped up in one there. And so then, you know, there was just so much confusion. What the hell do we do in a situation like that? I always thought, well, I would divorce her if I found out something like that, but it's not that easy. You know, there's a deep love, but then also deep pain and mm -hmm. just coexisting love and hate. And fortunately uh, my chaplain in the reserves had just gone through this with his best friend. And so I told him and he told me a couple things. That first day I told him, he said, Ben, your marriage isn't over yet, and God is not through using you yet. And so I don't know that I really believed those words at the time, but I stuck them in my back pocket and would come back to him from time to time when I felt like this was too hard. I can't do it. I need to give up and get out of here. Yeah, but what we did was we really made a, a commitment to stay engaged with the pain and to stay engaged with the process and to stay engaged with each other and see where that took us. And uh, another aspect of that is that we tried to stay in relationship with other people who would support this journey with us. Because, mm -hmm. you know, 
the enemy wants to isolate us in these types of situations. So that we mm -hmm. feel like we're all alone. Nobody's ever experienced this and you have to do this all by yourself. And that's just not the case. So we had some people in our lives who their, their trauma was different. Mm -hmm. Theirs was losing a daughter in a car accident. Mm -hmm. uh, but they understood the depth of pain that we were going through. And so we were able to really journey with them or they were able to journey with us into the pain and the process of, of rebuilding our relationship from, from the affair. Mm -hmm. And let me ask real quick. I, I understand what staying engaged with the process and staying engaged with each other is, but what did it mean to be committed to stay engaged with the pain and why was that important? Well, for, for both of us as being conflict avoiders, we didn't mm. like conflict. We didn't like, uh, going anywhere with our feelings. Cause like I said, I didn't even really know what my feelings were much less how to express them. So for me, staying engaged with the pain meant that I allowed myself to just sit with whatever emotions started to come up. I didn't try to continually push them down and push them away and say, that doesn't matter, sweep them under the rug, so to speak. Um, and instead I just kind of shook that rug out and allowed all of those emotions that began to rise up in me to actually have an impact on my soul. And I was able to embrace that impact instead of push it away. And because once I began to process the affair, it just opened all these other doors. It was like opening that closet that nobody wants to open, that mm -hmm. if you've stuffed so much stuff in there, that once you open the door, everything just comes tumbling out and knocks you over. Mm -hmm. And so it was kind of like using the analogy of the closet again. It was like, okay, all this stuff has now come tumbling out. I'm gonna sit here in the closet with all of this junk instead of shoving it all back in the closet and closing the door again. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, and I think for me, um, you know, I quit drinking a couple months after I called out to God and, and um, something in me knew there was just so a certain amount of pain I was going to have to deal with going through this and I just wanted to face it as much as I could. And I was much more alive to Anne and that surprised her that we just didn't sweep this under the rug in two or three days and move on. Um, and just staying engaged in that and again, looking at our whole story looking at my life, looking at our life together from the beginning, because I had the illusion that, oh, we're married now. All that stuff that happened before that doesn't matter, but it matters a lot. And so we were able to look at our relationship from the beginning and just really begin to grieve and hurt over ways we had wounded each other and, and ways we had been wounded by others. So what role did shame have in this? And, and what was the process of, of facing that? Ooh. Uh, shame was huge because I had a lot of experiences in my earlier years that brought a lot of shame that covered my heart. And so what I have, I learned through this process was that in order to break the grip of shame, I had to learn to reveal that shame. Um, Brene Brown says that, uh, shame hates having words wrapped around it. Mm. And so if you speak about what is causing you shame, then it, it breaks the grip that shame has on your heart. You know, another friend of mine says, you know, shame that is spoken is broken. And I truly believe that if we can be honest and vulnerable with other people, 
about with safe people, not everybody. You don't want to tell this to perhaps everyone, but if you can be honest and vulnerable with people that you trust, then that shame can really dissipate and you can throw it off. And, you know, truth is a, is a huge aspect, was a huge aspect for me. You know, I always heard that verse, um, uh, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And I was like, oh, isn't that a nice, warm, fuzzy thought about salvation? But as I went through this process of healing from my shame, it was like, oh, no, truth is so much more extravagantly powerful than shame in breaking the power of the, that the shame had over my life because it would try and keep me in the background or keep me... I, I was never really a background person. I was more of a, um, I covered it up by being this person that would just walk in the room and, and I would, you would never know that I was hurting, but I would cover everything up. And, and man got there, the party started. Yeah. I even said that sometimes it's really sad. I'd say, Anne's here, the party can start now. And so, um, but uh, so truth was a big aspect and, and just owning my brokenness was a huge aspect of breaking the grip that shame had on me. Um, and it's like, you know, we get all these gaps in our heart and in our soul from that brokenness that, that, we, feel, that we feel and we feel like, okay, now I have to cover up all these gaps because I don't want anybody to see this brokenness that I have. And that was how I had lived for so many years. But in reality, what happens with those gaps is that is the place where God can come in and he can just pour his grace into all of those gaps and and his light and his love can just get in there and in your soul and begin to do a change work inside of you mm -hmm. and heal that shame and, and release you from that shame um so that was a big piece of it for me and was it important for you guys to know the difference between shame and guilt in the process Oh, for sure. For sure. I think, I, you know, I don't know when we actually began to put those words to it, but I think we, we, I began to look too, just as, as an alcoholic of, of at my shame underneath that. And so take, uh, taking ownership and uh, and feeling a proper amount of guilt for the wounds I had called Ann, caused Dan when I was drinking, but also uh, beginning to understand how, you know, what I said about my golf score and just that I felt like a defective person and, and felt like there wasn't much of substance to me. And that's how my shame so showed itself and just beginning to own who I was as a man and beginning to stand up and, and be a protector for Anne and my family. Um, and so that, that was significant. And, you know, that's an ongoing journey for me as, as even today of just identifying those shame messages and those lies that get whispered into my ears that just aren't true about me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because guilt says I made a mistake and shame says I am a mistake. Mm -hmm. And so to, knowing the difference between the two is so huge because we're all going to feel guilty at times, but uh, we don't have to feel that shame because we are not a mistake. God doesn't make mistakes. Mm -hmm. Let me ask you this. Uh, how much of this work that you guys did was individual work that you did in parallel and how much of it was joint work that you were able to do together? And did that percentage kind of shift as the process moved along? I feel like in the beginning, I, I mean, we started out doing a lot of joint work. And then I realized doing that joint work that I had a lot of work to do just on me. Mm -hmm. 
because like I said, when I opened the door to that nasty closet, mm -hmm. everything came tumbling out and there was so much for me to process and so much for me to dig into and dig through uh, and go through that I did a lot of work on my own uh, with a counselor and then um, through the process actually of grieving my father's death. Wow. That was a whole nother step of opening my heart to the, the process of God wanting to soften me and soften my heart and allow me to heal even more mm -hmm. from all that had happened in my life. Uh, and I was able to allow other mm -hmm. women mm -hmm. to be a part of my journey. Cause before I had pretty much, I, I, we had friends, some trusted friends, but a lot of what I did, I did on my own for being an extrovert. That seems kind of odd that a lot of what I did, I wanted to do on my own. And I think it's because I didn't trust other people. I didn't trust what they would do with mm -hmm. all this, the closet stuff that had come tumbling out. And so the, the death of my father, uh, really softened my heart enough where I could invite those, those other women in. So, yeah, I think it was, and there was part of me and this wasn't a good thing, but part of me. So, well, you're the one who's had, who's had the affair here. So go deal with your stuff. And so we did the joint work and, you know, I had my friends I talked with and talked about my pain with and that and reflected on my life, you know, some when I quit drinking a few years earlier, but a big step for me was about two years after I found out about the affair, we were in grad school for me to get my master's in counseling. And that year, you know, it's not a cerebral experience. It's really being immersed. It's almost like a year intensive counseling experience. And so there was so much for me there, just taking a look at my soul, realizing that my shame kept me from owning the good qualities that I do have. If I did something kind for somebody, I would go hide for a couple of weeks because I didn't want to somebody to expect that from me all the time. And then I also ended up just mm -hmm. <clears throat> as not part of the program, but just with some other guys in my class there in a small group. And, and that was a significant part of my grieving and healing. And those guys just let me hurt, let me talk and called me out on stuff when I needed called out. And so that was real significant for, for, for me on my individual journey. So at what wow. point did you decide we need to put this in a book and uh, walk with other people through this? <laughs> well, we probably decided that about 20 years ago, but we just fit, wrote the book a couple of years ago. So, um, so actually, when I started going to grad school, I was talking to my uh, chaplain and I said, hey, man, if you hadn't been here to walk with us through this, I don't know if we would have made it. I said, I want to tell our story to help other people. And he says, oh, man, if you do, you better be ready because they'll come out of the woodwork because there's so many. Right. And that's when I ended up reading uh, Larry Crabb's Inside Out that helped me learn to take a deeper look at the soul and ended up at Colorado Christian, which is a pro counseling program he founded. So yeah, mm. that was, that was 20 years ago. And then I began to write a blog about 10 years ago. And so the writing started then and helping. And then we finally got to the point of, Hey, we need to get this on paper so people can buy it and have it in their, in their living room. So, yeah. mm -hmm. But in the meantime, you have helped and are continuing to help quite a number of couples, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Right. I counsel full time on a weekly basis. And then we also do intensives where we get away with couples here in the Rocky Mountains for five days and and really start really get immersed. And it gets them out of their normal daily place that they look at so they don't have to worry about their chores. There is no cell signal where we take them. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
So, so yeah, and it's, it, there's really been some significant transformations. You know, the first day we generally track, try, uh, tackle the easy stuff like betrayal and anger and grief. Those are the easy topics. Uh-huh. Right? <laughs> we've had a couple guys come in, and, you know, the, the next morning and it's just really hard and heavy. They're getting deep in it and God's working on them during the night. And they come in just at the end of themselves. They're like, what's the point of this? What's the point? One guy just goes, fuck it, fuck it, fuck it. I don't know what else to do. Mm-hmm. And when he said, I don't know what else to do, I knew that was a place of hope, you know, because that was a place where you're either going to choose, you're going you're gonna to run away, or you're going to lean into God in that spot. And so we help people with that. And we started doing some uh, intensives for people that live around Longmont or Denver that are, are Friday night and Saturday. And so the idea is they can come in quarterly because that's just easier on a lot of people's schedules and coming in weekly. So mm-hmm. we help in that way as well. So 90 days, a survival guide, why 90 days? And in a survival situation, you've got a few tools you better have with you to start your fire, or keep you warm. So why 90 days and what are the most important tools someone better have in their survival situation? Well, the first 30 days are total chaos. So I think surviving those first 30 days are really important. The emotions are so up and down and all over the place. So that's a key. And, and then we wanted to go 90 days just to say, okay, if you can make it 90 days, then you can just keep going. And so some of our key principles that we try to pass on to couples is, number one, your relationship with God needs to become central. Regardless of what happens between you and your spouse, your relationship with God needs to be central. And then you can work on that being central in your relationship with each other. And then... And c- central in a way, not... A- black and white central but more like jacob wrestling with god central so Mm. yeah yeah and then um marriage has to become a priority where everything you do every decision you make you you send that through the lens of how is this going to impact my marriage how is this going to impact my relationship with my spouse and so that's another key and then also again both being fully committed to processing the relationship going back and saying, okay, this, this affair didn't happen in a vacuum. What happened beforehand to get us to this point? Mm. Yeah. And then also important is honesty, just a deep commitment to honesty because there's so much deceit around the affair and it's really the lying that's harder to get over than the sex. And so really making a commitment to honesty and full disclosure and, and did that. And that was really helpful for me and because learning to trust. Oh, you can, you can have honesty without intimacy, but it's almost impossible to have intimacy without honesty. So, and that's a huge goal mm. that we move towards with couples is helping them to learn different ways to be intimate with each other. Yeah. It was key mm. for us just to recapture. I had the illusion that, okay, you go to, you go to school, you get your job, you, you get married, you have kids, you get your cars, you get your house. And well, then what, you know, it's like, and, and so we lost a commitment to growth. And so, we recaptured that commitment to be on the grow, so to speak, and that life is dynamic, our souls are dynamic, and, and really pay attention to that and, and not get stagnant and complacent in our lives. And then another key point is having some community around you. We like to say, you know, our favorite people are, are people that we can laugh with and cry with at the same time, and they both feel genuine. And so finding those kind of people in your life and, 
and just really being able to talk about anything like my friend who lost his daughter, you know, I could tell him I took my three irons, smashed a mirror that I gave Dan one time and, and he wouldn't flinch. He would tell me about the time he would kick a hole in his closet, you know, and, and we understood the depth of our pain and anger and we weren't afraid of it. And then, but also we'd just have fun and be goofy and hang out. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. Yeah. And also just listening to each other. We like to tell couples three, uh, just kind of a triad of be intentional, be curious, and be for one another. You know, be for one another. Be intentional, be curious, and be for one another. Mm. So, so if the first 30 days are total chaos and you just got to get through it, that's also the time you're most likely to be a complete dumbass. So what are the worst mistakes or the key mistakes that both the betrayed and the betrayer must avoid during the first 30 days? Killing themselves. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Suicide, not first thing to avoid. Suicide is a big one. Yeah. I was very suicidal immediately following the revelation. So mm -hmm. go ahead. Yeah. Big temptation for me just to go numb myself by getting drunk again, even though I hadn't drank in several years. And so not going back to whatever crutches there were or are in those moments. And obviously, you know, I was feeling a lot of uh, rejection and abandonment learning about the affair. And so real temptation just to go find another woman to find comfort and uh, to avoid that. How, how much was that thought about comfort versus vengeance? Uh, yeah, it was a mix. I think that's right. Getting even was a big part of that, Aaron. You know, I'll get back to her. If she's going to do that to me, I'll do that to her. And totally ignoring the fact of that emotional relationship that I had been in, had been in and how much damage that had caused her. Yeah. yeah. Mm. How much is the, on the betrayed side, asking for too much or wrong information and on the other side wanting to clear your conscience by giving too much information what is what's the right balance in that or is there such thing as too much information uh well you know there's there's a part when you're betrayed sorry that that uh it feels like more information will make it hurt less and that works for about a millisecond every time and mm -hmm. so Anne was really good about my interrogation, so to speak, during those times, especially initially. But uh, we got some wise counsel early on that, that sexual details weren't necessary. They would just give you images that would be tough to get over. And, and so sex is sex and it feels good. And, you know, so we left a lot of that just at that. But um, I don't know that there was too much information, but at some point there's a place in the journey of knowing that, hey, this happened, it hurt. And to really accept that this is part of our story now. Yeah, and at some point, some some betrayed uh, spouses can get to the point where they become obsessed with the affair. They begin mm -hmm. to have essentially an affair with the affair because they are just constantly wanting to know more and more and more and more details. Where at that, there comes a point where it's like Ben's saying, it, it's not helpful anymore. I mean, as new stuff surfaces, yes, let's go ahead and share it. And we do want to be honest, but not to the point of where it's an obsession with all those details. What, what do they do? Because I've known so many people that get locked into the obsessive loop and it lasts for years. Mm -hmm. So how, what, what are some tools to get out or to avoid that? Uh, one part was just looking at the relationship as a whole and knowing that there was something, it was a bad way to communicate it, but there was something that Anne was trying to communicate to me through her affair and us together working out, okay, what was that message? And for us, it was, I had become Mr. Dole Christian and 
all of our time, I said, well, let's do family time. That sounds very godly, right? And mm -hmm. I had lost our love relationship and we had lost fun in our relationship. And I had, I had neglected to pursue Anne and her heart and soul and to pursue her, her beauty and know that I delighted in her. Wow. Say, uh, where can our listeners get a copy of Betrayed and Betrayer? Yeah, uh, the ebook is available only on Amazon, and actually that's on sale right now for 50% off, so the next few days would be a good time to get that. And then the, uh, the soft cover, the paperback, you could get at any uh, book outlet online pretty much that sells it. Okay, all right. And, and if someone wanted to connect with your ministry or you guys, what would be the best place for them to go? Uh, marriagesrestored.com. They can go to our blog there and, and there's a contact us sheet there that they can get in touch with us and we'll get back with them uh, quickly. And we'd love to talk with them. If somebody just wants to chat a little bit, hear a little bit more about what we do, they can do that. Or if they want to set up an intensive, we can do that. So for the person that has been possibly hiding an affair and thinks, I just can't take the step to reveal this, what's, what's your message to that person? It's worth it. It's worth taking that step to not only feel the freedom in your relationship with the other person, but also to feel the freedom in your own soul. It's hard. I, I'll, I'll give you that. I'm not, I'm not going to sugarcoat it and say that it's an easy step to take, but it's totally worth it. Yeah, I think that's why it's the best day and the worst day. It's the most painful day of my life, but it's the moment that we really began to get honest with each other and really began to experience true emotional intimacy together. Mm -hmm. Nice. Well, thank you guys so much for sharing your story. Wow. I'm excited for the some listeners to get some tools and some hope and some hard processes. Thank you. That's great. Yeah. Thank you all for having us on. It's been great talking with you. Yeah. What an excellent conversation. God bless you guys. All right. And, and once again, our listeners can go to marriagesrestored.com or they could look online for a copy of Betrayed and Betrayer by Ben and Ann Wilson. Thanks guys. God bless you. All right, thank you. Pleasure. Thanks a lot, Nate. And we will be right back on the Pirate Monk Podcast. We are back on the Pirate Monk podcast. Great conversation. I, I like Ben and Anne. What a sweet couple. Yeah, they really are. And you can tell they have been through it and they've come out stronger and sweeter. Uh, what an engaging, fun couple. I like that they're committed to having fun. That's a big value for me and for Allie, too. And I think they'd be a fun, a, a fun couple to hang with. Yeah, they they I. I just seeing her, I, I can picture that uh, extrovert that she talked about in her college years. She yeah. kind of still has that shine, doesn't she? Yeah, she really, she really does. <laughs> and, and Ben kind of casually mentioned that he played a little golf. I mean, he played more 
than a little golf and a very high level. Uh, you know, uh, uh, he was, uh, I believe, captain of a nationally, a national championship college team, or at least on the team and uh, played at a high level for a long time. So on my list is have fun with Ben and Ann and never play golf with Ben. Wait, do you, have you played golf before? I play with my son. And that's the only time I play because I'm horrible and I hate to do things I'm not good at. <laughs> so one time you played golf. No, no, no. You know, I, he's so the only you, person I an, will play with. So it's an ongoing thing. Yeah, yeah. All yeah. right. I, man, next time I'm in town or you're in town, we got to do it because I love going out and being horrible at golf with other people who are horrible at golf. It is just the most delightful time. Okay. Well, I can do that. If you're really horrible, then I will go golfing with you. Joe, I will tell you, I... I took the staff one day at First Baptist. I'm like, we got into a staff meeting, and I said, "This this is boring, you guys. Let's go. Let's go golf or something." Mm-hmm. And everyone went, "Hey, we're bored too. Let's go." So we go, Ben Barzi and flip flops. I mean, this is just gonna be horrible. And on this one hole, I hit the ball and don't know where it goes. Goes in some trees. Next to the trees is a fairway going the other direction. So I'm going looking at looking for my ball, and right in the middle of the other fairway, I see it. I've hit it through the trees on the other fairway. So I see some people up at the tee, and I think, okay, I'll just really fast run and grab my ball. So I run over there, grab it, run back to the trees, and I just hear, hey, hey, what are you doing? <laughs> it, was, it was then that I realized I had run and grabbed somebody's perfect shot. It was just right in the middle of their fairway. So I chuck the ball back onto the fairway and take off. <laughs> <Back>. <laughs> so that's how good I am at golf. Is uh, I, evidently I my best shots are other people's shots on holes that I'm not even playing. Okay. Does that make you feel a sense of safety? Oh, that's fantastic! <laughs> it does. It does. It does. It makes me think that I could actually go to a golf course. Actually, there is a new business everybody's talking about in Nashville. I haven't been yet. Uh, but it's this uh, kind of like a driving range thing, except it's like a high-rise building with one wall missing, and you so you you're you're, you're yeah, like in a hotel st- room, yeah, right? Yeah, uh, you stack them up. Yeah, 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 and you drive out into, and then there are targets, and I don't know what all. I do know they yeah. serve beer. Well, okay, and okay. and that would be very fun on a high level because even bad shots are going to go at least fifty yards, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, you okay. feel accomplished. Well, we want to hear from you listeners, so please write in at uh, piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. You did it! That is our email address, <laughs> piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. So drop us a line, send us a note. Uh, make sure to check out uh, the website and get involved with a virtual meeting and find out what that's all about and connect with other people across the country, nay, even in other countries, I bet. Yes, absolutely. And the, the uh, virtual meetings are going great. What a, what a terrific way to connect with other guys. And very convenient. Don't even have to get in your car. All right. Well, until next time, uh, I'm Nate. I'm Aaron. And we are your pals on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Hast du etwas Zeit für mich? Singe ich ein